Welcome to Israel and You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Our host is Aaron David Free, president of Israel Team Advocates International. Aaron is an author, speaker, Bible teacher, and an advocate for Israel and the Jewish people on college campuses nationwide. This is Israel and You. Hey, welcome to Israel and You, and we've got a great program lined up today. We're going to interview a special guest, uh, Dr. Brad Young. We're going to talk about how the Passover relates to the Lord's Supper. We're also going to talk about who killed Jesus. And Israel team advocates, we do work on Christian college campuses to try to push back against the growing anti-Israel narrative within the millennial generation. You can follow us on Facebook, Israel Team Advocates. You can follow us on Twitter. You can go to our website, israelteam.org, and download tons of information there that'll help you in your understanding of uh, Israel and the Jewish people. You can follow my blogs and articles at the Times of Israel. Just Google Aaron David Free, F-R-U-H, and you can read lots of articles updated there every week about what's happening in the land of Israel, what's happening with anti-Semitism. So today, we're going to talk about uh, the issue of who killed Jesus. In just a few weeks, Christians from around the globe We'll spend Good Friday in solemn remembrance of the crucifixion of Jesus. So who's responsible for the death of Christ? For most of Christian history, the Jewish people have been accused of murdering Jesus. Over the centuries, Christian art depicts Jews as evil murderers who killed Jesus. Vatican II Council in 1965 published a declaration entitled Nostra Atate, which revealed Jews, or relieved Jews, past and present, from being accountable for the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, The issue of deicide, which is the murder of God. And since the second century, when church father Justin Martyr proclaimed the Jews would collectively as a people bear the responsibility from generation to generation for killing Jesus, the charge of deicide, which is the murder of God, has been used by Christians to persecute Jews. So think of the Crusades and the pogroms and the expulsions and ultimately the Holocaust. Even though Nasr Atate nearly 60 years ago cleared the Jews of killing Jesus, and even though Pope uh, Benedict uh, more than a decade ago exonerated Jews of the crime of deicide, proclaiming in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, Part two, that there is no basis in Scripture to blame the Jewish people for Christ's death. There are still Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, who believe the Jews killed Jesus. So here to tackle this issue and the issue of how the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, relates to Passover, among other issues we're going to talk about today, is Dr. Brad Young, a good friend. And Brad Young earned his Ph.D. from Hebrew University in comparative religions. He is emeritus professor of biblical literature and Judaic Christian studies at the Graduate School of Theology at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He has taught advanced language courses as well as the Jewish foundations of early Christianity to graduate students for over 30 years. In addition to his well-known work on the life of Jesus, He has devoted much energy to Jewish-Christian interfaith dialogue. He has written numerous books, including Jesus, the Jewish Theologian, Paul, the Jewish Theologian, and the Parables, Jewish Tradition, and Christian Interpretation. Brad is a translator of the Hebrew Heritage Bible Newer Testament, 
a new translation that highlights the first century meaning of Scripture for the 21st century. And uh, we're so uh, honored to have uh, Brad on the program today. So welcome, uh, Brad, Dr. Brad Young, to Israel and You. Thank you, Aaron. It's such a great joy to be with you, especially at this season that so many things are happening in our faith, our communities, uh, events. It's so important to keep on focus, have a laser focus on what's the most important. It's so important. And, and Brad, we're going to tackle several issues here today. And the first is, you know, as Christians, you, you see all these films during Easter and we hear sermons uh, from pulpits. So how do f- f- uh, Christian films and Easter sermons get it wrong about the historical facts of the trial of Jesus? Well, it seems like in uh, the Easter sermons, often there's a vilification of the Jewish people. Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum, uh, who I had the privilege of knowing, uh, meeting and talking to, uh, he told the story about his uh, father, how his father just could not even take himself to walk in front of a church. And his father related how when he was a little boy in Poland, uh, he, his uncle, who was a, a great scholar of Passover, poetry, Hebrew, he came to visit them. And it happened to be Easter. This uh, pastor had just talked about how the Jews had killed Jesus. They actually came to his home and they pushed his uncle into the water and he drowned. And, uh, you know, you, you would think that Easter should be a day of celebration of the resurrection of the Lord. But sometimes there has been that sense of disengagement between the Jewish and Christian communities in the sense that, well, the Jews are really responsible for the death of Christ. And just as you were saying, this deicide, I think even in some of our movies, uh, I mean, the, the passion by Mel Gibson was so powerful in that it conveyed the, uh, the sufferings of Christ. Uh, I would also say, you know, Mel Gibson, I mean, he is such a, a great movie producer. I mean, uh, you know, there's different things he did. I, I don't know. I, I saw, uh, a lethal weapon one, two, three, four, uh, my, my incredibly awesome wife loved uh, Braveheart, you know, uh, the, the love story part of it, you know, but I think after doing uh, Braveheart, he was able to kind of convey the, the pain of the crucifixion. But if you look at the historical facts of the film, he actually has the, the Romans trying to save Jesus. And it's the Jewish guard that from the temple that arrests Jesus and, you know, it, it really conveys this message of the crucifixion of Jesus. I, I would just say, Aaron, on that point of the movie, the Gospel of John in chapter 18 speaks about those who came to arrest Jesus. And it's not like the movie where it was a temple guard. The Gospel of John actually mentions a Roman heliarch. Now, a heliarch is above a centurion. You know, when we say centurion, we say he's a, he's a Roman soldier, um, over a garrison of a hundred or so men, sometimes plus or minus. Well, Hilliarch was over a thousand, maybe 6,000. I mean, this was the top general, you know, as described in the Gospel of John. And I think when we really look at the facts of the story from the Bible, for instance, uh, you look very closely at the Gospel of Luke, which talks about uh, there was a, a gathering of the high priest and he went to his, it says, their committee. 
Well, I think if you look at the this whole story of Passover, many people were celebrating Passover in their homes according to one calendar when the high priests who were Sadducees, they had a different calendar. They arrested Jesus when most of the other Jews, including Jesus and his disciples, had, had celebrated Passover. And likely, uh, as many have seen with this other calendar, the Sadducees could have their committee and they arrested Jesus. It's, it's really this sad scenario where we kind of see that all the Jews are the same in the gospels. Well, this crowd on the triumphal entry said, blessed is he. I love the way Luke's gospel says, Hamelech, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Many were welcoming him, but then there was another crowd that was talking with Pilate, was saying crucify him. Well, I think if we carefully read the gospels, this was an entirely different crowd. It was a crowd of Sadducees, some of the priestly uh, leaders who received their power from the Romans. The, the Romans appointed the high priest. The, the Romans uh, kept uh, the vestments of the high priest. There, there was a lot of connections there. And what we see in Pilate is that he was a ruthless uh, a ruler. Uh, the Gospel of Luke mentions how he mentioned mingled the blood of Jewish people worshiping with their sacrifices. Uh, the, terrible things that Philo of Alexandria said about him, executions constantly repeated without trial. And, you know, he was this ruthless Roman, uh, you know, I guess we could say the Italians killed Jesus because after all, uh, Pilate uh, was the one that made the decision. And he he offered, well, you could have Barabbas. I, th I think he looked at Barabbas as the most dangerous criminal. He's a murderer and insurrectionist. And and I think he wanted to release Jesus because, you know, if he could, Barabbas was more uh, dangerous and he had this amnesty custody where he would release one Jewish prisoner during, uh, you know, high level prisoner during uh, the Passover. So maybe it wasn't so much that he was believing in Jesus. Some people have even made Pilate a pope. Uh, but, you know, Aaron, this is very important in history to say it was. The Roman authorities, they, they had some help from Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. They had a little help from some of the Sadducees. But the majority of the people uh, supported Jesus. I mean, they couldn't arrest Jesus when he's teaching on the Temple Mount because all the people were for him. And uh, we see so many people that were supporting Jesus. We see Gamaliel in the book of Acts saving the apostles uh, and then the persecution in Acts chapter 5, chapter 4, it begins, Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, the leader of the Pharisees, says, who are we to fight against God? Maybe this movement of Jesus is of God. Let's wait and see. And if he had been a, a part of this, uh, a big Sanhedrin rather than a committee of the priest, uh, I think you would see, you know, maybe a, more of a discussion as we see in the book of Acts. So here he was the leader of the Pharisees trying to help Jesus. So I think we've got to really look at this historically. What does the Gospel of John say? It's different than the movie. What what is what do we see in the historical foundation? It's a little different from what people preach. But you know there's a theological issue because as a Christian, I recognize that our Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, willingly laid down his life uh, he he could have called 10,000 angels, the gospel says, but he, he laid down his life for us. Even as the Roman soldiers were crucifying him, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. He had 
this uh, a great love and, and compassion for the people that were suffering at the time. Uh, but he did this in a sense that was my sin. So in a way, each one of us uh, who are believing in Jesus, we are guilty. It was our sins and it was God's love, God's grace that brought Yeshua to the cross. But these historical issues are very important because of what has happened to the Jewish people. I just was so enthralled by Pope uh, John the 23rd, who in 1962, with the institution of Nostra Hatata, trying to uh, recover the historical foundation, seeing how this impacts us in faith. He, he had this prayer called the act of preparation. And he started by saying, in his prayer, we are conscious today that many centuries of blindness have cloaked our eyes so that we can no longer see the beauty of your chosen people. He actually prayed, forgive us for crucifying you a second time in their flesh, for we knew not what we did. I mean, I think I'd have to revise that prayer a little bit. I think the people knew what they were doing. They were doing it out of ignorance. But they say that when Pope John the 23rd saw Holocaust films, he said, Corpus Christi, this is the body of Christ. I mean, for any Christian to say that would be very powerful, but to think of, of a Catholic, uh, the, the Pope himself, recognizing in the suffering of Jewish people, the connection between the sufferings of Jesus. And I think really the cross of Jesus should be something that would connect Jewish people to Jesus because he suffered as a loyal Jew who loved his people. He suffered for his faith. And there's an identity there, whether you believe that Jesus is the Messiah or not. And of course, for us as Christians, I think it's, it's a part of our roots to reconnect with Jesus, the Messiah and his people. That's so wonderful, Brad. I was thinking of John 10, 17 through 18, which says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. And, and we forget about that. And so if we point three fingers, if we point a finger at the Jews saying, hey, they're, they're responsible from that day forward throughout all of uh, history for the deicide, the murder of Jesus, uh, we have three fingers pointed back at ourselves as Christians because it was our sin. It was our sin collectively that uh, led Jesus to lay his life down for us. And we come back from the break. We're going to continue to talk about Brad, uh, with Brad about uh, the Passover and how it relates to the Lord's Supper. So we'll see you on the other side of the break. Hi, I'm Aaron Free, President of Israel Team Advocates. And there's an alarming decline today in the support of Israel among U.S. evangelical millennials ages 18 to 29. A May 2021 survey administered by the Barna Group shows that between 2018 and 2021, favorable support for Israel has been cut in half from 75% to 35% among evangelical millennials in the United States. If this trend continues, evangelicalism will be anti-Israel in just a few short years. And remember that young Christians today will be the leaders of tomorrow. Israel team recently conducted interviews with students at a major evangelical university concerning their understanding of the Holocaust. The answers were troubling. To the first question, what was the Holocaust? Half of the students did not know. 
To the second question, who was Adolf Hitler, again, only half of the students had knowledge enough to connect him to the Jewish genocide. In the remaining questions, we found a surprising, breathtaking, really, lack of historical understanding of the murder of six million Jews during the Holocaust. This example is indicative of a much larger problem. The study of the Holocaust is not prioritized in Christian primary, secondary, and higher education. And there's so much more that we can do. You can help Israel Team today by going to israelteam.org and clicking the donate button and your tax-deductible gift today will help us in pushing back against this growing narrative of anti-Israelism within the evangelical millennial community. So go to israelteam.org and stand with us today. We're building a bridge for the coming generation, and it's so important that we build that bridge. So help us today at israelteam.org. That's israelteam.org. This is Israel in You, bringing Israel and the Jewish people into focus. Hey, welcome back. And we're speaking today, having a conversation with our good friend, Brad Young. And Brad is an author, he's a speaker, he's a professor. And so, Brad, we're going to pitch another a difficult issue to you, another question. How is it that Passover is related to the Lord's Supper? How does that work? Well, there are some churches that actually say when Jesus had the Lord's Supper, he canceled Passover. Hmm. And I think that's very curious when we read in the book of Exodus that Passover is a permanent ordinance and you're commanded to tell the story to your children. It's really kind of the foundation of Jewish education that a father would teach his children. And uh, it's very important what happens in that family. And of course, in the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, there's a great emphasis on the Passover itself. And you realize that in the Jewish sources, like the Mishnah, it said that you, a, a person would take their lamb to the temple, it would be sacrificed and prepared, and then they would take it back and eat it in groups of 10 approximately. Well, this is exactly what the Gospels describe. Uh, Jesus sends the disciples to prepare the room, the Passover lamb, uh, I think sometimes even in a simple story like this, we hear the Hebrew behind the Gospels. You know, Jesus said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, you can have Christmas dinner, but you can't eat Christmas. <laughs> Passover is a Jewish holiday. And so, uh, you know, what's going on? Actually, in Hebrew, the word Passover means both the Passover lamb and the holiday. And of course, when we look at the Gospels, John the Baptist himself called Jesus the Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that provides atonement, forgiveness. And we even see uh, the lamb used extensively in the book of Revelation, where the lamb of God conquers all evil. And he's the lion of Judah. He's the lamb of God. We see these powerful images. I think really when we're reading the book of Revelation, we should be a little more person-oriented rather than event-centered. You know, people are always looking at events, but really the book of Revelation is a revelation of who Yeshua is, who is Jesus, and we see him as the Lamb of God. All of this connects beautifully with the Passover. In fact, Luke's gospel gives us 
cups, just like we have four cups in the Passover uh, story. And, you know, maybe the, the cup of institution, that is the cup that was in the Passover understood as the cup of redemption, was a cup that he offered saying, this is a symbol, this is my blood, this bread, it's broken. Part of the Passover imagery is breaking the middle piece of matzah, breaking the bread. So we see a lot of the symbolism of Passover being used with the Last Supper that Jesus is sharing with his disciples as, as he's saying, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember, it's Zecher in the book of Exodus, remembering the Exodus, remembering the salvation from freedom, the emancipation, this freedom from slavery, this false god, Pharaoh. And why were they set free? I think a lot of people forget that. What did Moses say? Set, let my people go that they may serve me or worship me. The, the word la'avod in Hebrew, avodah, is both to worship and to serve. And I think today when we do Passover, today when we uh, share Holy Communion, we should be thinking about, Lord, we need to be set free. Uh, we need our emancipation so that we can serve you, so that we can experience your joy in our lives every day. And we're celebrating the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection in our own personal lives because the Apostle Paul talked about how the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in our bodies that are subject to death so that we could walk in this newness of life. So we have evidence of the resurrection in our personal lives. We also see the witness of the gospels and so much evidence that points to the resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah. So the Passover gives us that message of redemption. And I think it's also important, Aaron, to realize how important Passover is to the Jewish community today. And I think we should really honor the Jewish people and, and not appropriate their their celebration to recognize the sanctity of their celebration with their families but also seeing the meaning of the passover in history and how it connects with the first century jesus giving this meal with his close associates facing death facing suffering looking for forward to the resurrection we're talking today with dr brad young uh did his uh, PhD at uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, taught for 30 years at a major Christian university, a Hebrew scholar. And I would encourage everyone in the audience, uh, if you can get your hands on Dr. Young's books, they've, they've changed my life. And uh, one of his my favorite books is his books on the parables of Jesus. You can get these books on, on Amazon. Uh, another great book is Jesus, the Jewish Theologian, a wonderful book uh, that will just revolutionize your understanding of, of the Lord Jesus. He was, he was Jewish, and what he taught was Jewish. And so Brad has recently translated the New Testament uh, from Hebrew, because Jesus would have been speaking Hebrew, he translated from Hebrew into English. And so when you read this newer translation of the New Testament, you're going to hear exactly what Jesus said and how he said it. So, Brad, what was your approach to translating the newer Testament? Well, first I'll say we do have some excellent translations. And I 
just encourage people to read and study the Bible that speaks to you. But I think sometimes we, we want to get the historical meaning. We want to get the first century meaning. So most translations have two steps. They go from Greek into English. We have a third intermediate step. So when we translate from Greek, we say, what did this mean in Hebrew? Uh, what did this mean to the Jewish people? And then we give this functional equivalency in English so that you are able to hear as they heard. Uh, one example I think might help uh, when you hear, in my father's house, there are many mansions. And you always wonder, well, how do you get a house and a mansion, mansion and a house? And what what is most important here? We, we think of a physical building. But you know, in Hebrew, when you say buy it, and this can even be in Greek oikos, it can mean family. Jesus is of the house and lineage of David. That, that's he's from the family. So we translated it as they heard in my father's family. There is plenty of room. I'm making a place just for you. And I think it brings out a little bit more of the first century context or um, the Lord's Prayer, for instance, is something that we understand so much better from a Hebraic perspective. All the prayers prayed in the temple were prayed in Hebrew and the prayers that were celebrating the kingdom. You know, if you prayed the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you were accepting the kingdom of God in Jewish tradition. We even have a very powerful blessing that's recited after saying the Shema. Blessed is your glorious kingdom forever and ever. You are experiencing the kingdom when you believe in God, you follow him. And so uh, I think instead of saying thy kingdom come, making it something distant in the future, really, if we put it in the context of the first century, we translated it, continue establishing your kingdom. When we ex accept Christ, when we experience healing, uh, forgiveness, reconciliation in our families, we are experiencing a taste of the kingdom that's already something that we can walk in. And uh, I, I see that uh, very much emphasized in the prayer that Jesus taught us, the disciples' prayer, a prayer for disciples that uh, we, we need to hear as the people heard. And to do that, I think we have to think Hebraically. We have to understand the, the theology of Jesus as a Jewish theologian, like my book says. So uh, to me, it's just an exciting journey when we go to Israel, we explore Jewish literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the rabbinic literature, uh, parallels that help us understand how the people were thinking at that time. We need more of the first century meaning to get the, the meaning from the time of Jesus and apply it to our lives today. It's so relevant to what we're living right now. It's true. How, how do we get how do we get your new newer New Testament translation, Brad? Well, the the newer Testament translation is available at HebrewHeritageBible.com. My book, The Jewish Background of the Lord's Prayer, is also available at HebrewHeritageBible.com. I really feel like this translation will help people, maybe even people who have never read the Bible, to see it in the first century meaning and open up a, a new application to hear as they heard. HebrewHeritageBible.com. That's so great. So go to HebrewHeritageBible.com. It's a wonderful translation that will enhance your Christian life. And Brad, thank you so much for being with us today on Israel and You. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. You're a wealth of information, a well of knowledge, and we thank you so much for being with us today. God bless, Brad.